and welcome to the Miseducation of ESLP. My name is Ingrid and I am your host. And today I am back again with our guest host, Ashanti. Hello, everyone. Great to be back. I yell it, unfortunately, still suffering from this terrible vocal issue. She's been coughing. She's been stressed. She's been overworked and underpaid. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, um, Ashanti, our wonderful, wonderful assist in this whole experience as part of the family, is welcomed to continue to join us um, in the interim while we give Ayelet some time to recover. Absolutely. So, because um, we want we want Ayelet to get to the point where she's feeling her voice is strong and ready to go. As you know, that New York raspy thing is just <laughs> we got to preserve the the up north Staten Island rasp. So. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh goodness, as you start clearing your throat. Um it's all right. It's the morning time. See, we okay. are recording in the morning, guys. <laughs> I got my coffee right here. Let's do this. <laughs> so, today I introduce Superwoman SLP because I have not known someone who did so much all of the time. From the very beginning, even before she got to a graduate program, Superwoman SLP was like out here just being a boss and going, I'm going to learn this and I'm going to learn this and I'm going to learn this. Such a busy body, such an intelligent young lady. I am so pleased to have had the opportunity to sit down and really talk to her. It was really a great experience. And so she kind of rolled out her story. Um, She's within the, the, the last, you know, 10 years of being in this career, kind of moving through her education. Um, she was an overachieving type A personality with some B type groundedness, you know, we need in the SLP arena. Oh, yes. The good, the good, uh, the best possible com- combination of the two. Absolutely. So she started talking about where, um, you know, she was miseducated. I kind of picked up on that. I was like, Ooh, this is, this is a miseducated moment when she was just looking into graduate programs. She had a 3.65 GPA, you know, because who really cares about those first two years of undergrad? It kind of dampers you just a little bit, but 3.65, that's, that's what's up. It's pretty strong. She was the vice president of her sorority. She interned for early intervention. She did just a multitude of things so that she could be a well-rounded candidate for a speech program, of course, right? Of course. That's not exactly what happened. She um, applied to the three state schools of New Jersey, which is where she was from, because her mother was like, you could get that degree. It doesn't matter where you go. You know, it's money is important to think when you're considering a graduate program. You just, nobody wants to go into hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. (laughs) ain't that the truth no one no one does it willingly and intentionally (laughs) (laughs) it just kind of works out that way so she she you know she did what she could she applied to her new jersey programs and um you know looked at the differences or looked at what where it would make sense she just wanted it to be the least expensive that she could 
problem is she did not get accepted. And when she was investigating it a little bit with the universe or with the universities that she'd applied to in New Jersey, they were just essentially like, you don't have a 3.8. <gasps> wow. So a point 15 is what yeah. kept her from even being reviewed with all the other things that she was doing. <clears throat> there was no consideration of her speech GPA because the last two years are your heavy duty speech courses when you're doing your undergrad. Um, and those things were just not considered. Um, and she just lost out on that program for that semester. <clears throat> and that's something we all need to kind of keep in mind when going into this profession is that some of these programs are really, they're, they're simple minded and the types of people that they want, they want people that are academics. And if you're doing all that she was doing, that's really hard to do because she really, I mean, you, you, you go into an internship for early intervention during your, I mean, who does that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And she was carrying, you know, a bunch of different jobs essentially. I Absolutely. Mean. <laughs> she was collect, 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 busybody, just taking in everything. Well, also, you know, filling her experience with real world scenarios you know, stuff that a person that's got their nose in the books would not understand or know how to navigate. Yeah, I think she's really a person who, or at least from what I can gather, she's really tactile. She really is into just the, the work of it all. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't that she was a bad student. 3.65, excellent GPA, excellent. So she had her nose there too. Just, I don't know, it just wasn't enough, which yes. seems to be a commonality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so frustrating because they, like you said, they probably didn't even look at, you know, which classes were uh, harming her GPA. It didn't matter that, you know, she probably aced every single one of those, you know, directly speech related classes. They just said, nope, it's not a 3.8. Next. Correct. Correct. <sighs> so you have to be, you have to be on your game from the very beginning in your undergrad to you know, make an influence, or you really just get invested, get talking to people, um, network, network, network. That is, you know, you have to do that so early and out of, out of high school into college, it's kind of a hard thing to be so center focused on. Um, although I'm assuming with the changes in technology and internet and exposure, uh, people will learn sooner about how to navigate the, the process and becoming speech language pathology. Anyway, um, so Superwoman was like, okay, I didn't get accepted. Let me get hired as an ABA therapist and start working with children with autism. Yes. Oh. <laughs> okay, that's what we're doing now. Awesome. <laughs> just, wow. <laughs> let me just do that with my bachelor's degree because a bachelor's degree is still a very good degree to have. And um, so she did that. And still reapplied for graduate program for the spring. And there weren't that many programs at the time that she was applying around 2011, 2010, 2011, that for a placement uh, during spring. So she looked up and down and she couldn't find anything except for like three programs. And one of them happened to be St. John's University in Queens, New York. So she mm -hmm. got accepted there. Um, she could have gone to the New York Medical, uh, Medical College where she had um, later date, like closer to now, created or got a postgraduate certificate. 
But when she compared the two programs, New York Medical College was 74 credits versus 52 from St. John's University. So (laughs) she was about to enter into that UCF program like we did. (laughs) Right? 72, baby. That's a lot of credits, which turns into a lot of money saved. Yeah. So she was like, I'm going to go ahead and go to St. John's. Now, the thing that she identified was, oh, shit, less credits means less exposure to things that she might need in her career. And so she had to pick between things like fluency and voice. She could not take both because it's a 52 credit program. Oh, wow. So because of that, she realized that she had to kind of supplement her education. And she, she, for like one of her placements, she needed to take an additional CEU because she didn't have any experience in voice. And that was predominantly what the patient caseload was. So she, she needed to compensate for the fact that she chose a program that was only 52 credits instead of the comprehensive one. Um, I mean, for me, 72 credits hurt my pocket as a graduate store, uh, you know, graduate student. I mm-hmm. do not, but that program at UCS is comprehensive. Yes. Yes. We got exposed to everything possible. Boy, I had multicultural communication. I had counseling mm-hmm. and communication sciences. I had dysphagia. I had voice. I built my own larynx. I mean, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Boy, this program, and then it offered the literacy track, which is the one I yell it went through for. Yeah, I was just gonna say I yell it, and I did the language and literacy uh, certificate as well. I mean, it was like UCF was just throwing all the education at you. Like, there you go. <laughs> it was a Las Vegas buffet of speech so, and language. <laughs> so, I mean, I respect those um, programs that do it that way because you do get a lot of foundational information, but. It does get at your pocket. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of do the cost to, to benefit ratio. So as she kind of moved through her program, because she started at St. John's and she was enjoying it, she actually connected with um, a professor who had a doctorate in an entirely different um, discipline. She did not have a doctorate in speech language pathology, but she was a professor for speech language pathology. And, um, and this professional, you know, this professor of hers was so uh, dedicated that she did um, um, mission trips to Guatemala for pediatric dysphagia. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So guess what? Superwoman SLP goes down to Guatemala for an internship or a mission trip experience um, and, you know, builds educational and, you know, quick reference guides for the nurses down in Guatemala. Wow. During her graduate program, because she just needs to do everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no big deal. I'm just going to, you know, kick ass over here overseas. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) she did an independent study, um, you know, the feeding guide, and went back. Like, she wanted to make sure that this was something that was really implemented and found it to be something she was passionate about. She didn't even know anything about pediatric feeding before she got into uh, this program. And it kind of has shifted her entire career 
because, you know, I'm not entirely sure what she would have done in speech language pathology before she got exposed to this professor who was passionate about pediatric feeding, but it absolutely, absolutely triggered her and gave her this like newfound thing that she wanted to do in the world. That's awesome. I don't know that I necessarily felt that way when I went through my program. Like, do I want to work with adults or kids? I, I do remember um, Dr. Whiteside, rest her soul, love that woman. She is, oh, she was a powerhouse for me, Janet Whiteside. Mm-hmm. She, she made me love adults. Um, well, she was always so passionate, you know, about working with adults and, you know, teaching us on how to help them navigate, you know, what they'd been through. And I think she was one of the first that kind of made us see clearly, imagine going through your whole life, you're able to communicate, you're able to eat, you're able to do all this stuff. And then something that you cannot control happens. You have, you have a, you know, a a TIA and all of a sudden you're trying to say the word blue and you can't say the word blue. You know, it's just, she kind of, um, she put it in our faces in a different manner to where, you know, our 20 something year old brains could wrap our heads around, wow, that really stinks. Let's help these people, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, not side note, not all graduate students are 20 something. Cause there was some, this is true. <laughs> ferocious, ferocious moms in our program. And I was like, wow, second yes. career, second career achievers. I was like, yes, because I was struggling. <laughs> Well, and, that and navigating having children. I remember a lot of them had some kids and I was like, I can't even understand how you're getting the homework done. <laughs> grown, just bodying it. And now that I'm that their age and I'm just trying to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we digress. She, sorry. <laughs> hey, we're just having good conversation. So she got um she got herself through the program and she you know kind of started the career she started working in an environment where she did um pediatric feeding and she kind of moved through that and she's been enjoying it but she's also had some interesting exposure because she learned in her graduate program that you could be a professor Um, for the speech-language pathologist arena without actually having a PhD in speech pathology, just something that is an allied profession. Mm -hmm. Part of her career early on, and I mean early, within the first year or two, she was like, oh, let me get a PhD in behavioral health because it matters to her with her experience with autism. Absolutely. The importance of mental health and how it affects therapy Um, how it affects rehab, how it affects everything, you know, she was like, I absolutely want to get involved with behavioral health. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, of course. She's like, I'm, I'm done with my CF. I'm a little bored. Let me get my PhD. Mm -hmm. You can see why I called her superwoman SLP. You can see it. Oh yeah. She won't, she, it seems like she won't sit still, you know, she just, it's not that she can't, it's that she won't. She literally could not do it. So she um, learned, though, as she moved through the program, guess what an SLP license cannot bill for? Oh, gosh. Behavioral. Yeah. 
you cannot build as a speech language pathologist behavioral health codes. And so she's like, um, I kind of want a bill for this because it's a service I'm going to be providing and in it, you know, during my speech language experience. Side note, guess what discipline can bill for behavioral health codes? School psychologists? No, occupational therapists. OT, really? Absolutely, because shut the front door. <laughs> yep. Isn't that something? So yeah. Speech pathology is geared. We're just, in- we're just getting pooped on. Like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> we're just getting pooped on. Like they're just peeing in our Cheerios. Like there is no sort of respect right now. <laughs> like, what the hell? And and here and here's what boggles my mind. Behavior, you know, bad behavior, good behavior. It's a form of communication. When it, when a person or a child is nonverbal, their behavior is communicating something. Hello. Welcome to nonverbal communication, guys. Oh yep. my gosh. Yeah. But we can't we can't build for it because you know. We don't know what we're doing in the science of speech language pathology when it comes to behavioral health and mental health. No, no, no. But but send your traumatized TBI or stroke or mother or father of a child with a disorder. Send them to us so that we can just fix only the swallow or the communication and not the whole emotional thing that's sitting in front of you because you've just experienced something very traumatic. No, no, no. No, no, don't bill for those things. That's just not in our wheelhouse, right? That's that like that is as cold as the coffee in my mug right now. That's just cold. <laughs> anyway, so she I, I when she said that to me, I kind of got just as I got right now, just like, come on, man. How can we how can we expand this? Like how can we push people to understand more and more about what we were providing? sincerely it just doesn't make any sense it 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 hurts it sucks but i mean i think it takes the effort of moving through legislation through you know political arenas which is not my forte or my interest Mm -hmm. but it is required to make those types of changes and so you know as somebody who is is moving through advocacy with this career, um, with the book and with what I want to move forward in, in making sure that people understand the capacity of speech language pathologists should be the ones to guide the care for patients and not business driven models. Like we need to also identify our science actually backs up this utilization of this billing code. We've grown in that. Here's all the evidence, you know, um, that's right. the re- that's the reason why like I want to continue to partner with people like the informed SLP that puts out all these research because I'm like oh clearly you would have access to finding that information so that we could present this to legislation and be able to have an opportunity where we could bill for these codes because it makes sense in our science and mm-hmm. it's just it's a slow process because you know women want to just nurture we don't really want to fight <laughs> yeah it, it's it seems like it, you know, there's a need for a lobbyist, you know, somebody to, to fight on our behalf, you know, as far as the profession is concerned. And I wonder if there's anything out there that, um, you know, serves in that capacity. 
I think there's like a small group that's off of ASHA that uh-huh. might do that. Um, they get a small amount, but uh, because ASHA is a non-for-profit, it's not allowed to do things in that way. But I think there's like an offshoot. Um, I remembered something along those lines, but it's been a while. Yeah. Huh. But um, it's things that like that that I would investigate to figure out where, you know, there could be a niche for really fighting the good fight. But anyway, as we continue... Pediatric feeding was Miss Superwoman's superpower. (laughs) (laughs) And she loved the craft. She was a born leader in it. You know, she basically has created her dreams in this unorthodox way. I mean, with her seeing the doctorate doctorate, uh, in her program and understanding that postgraduate education is actually really helpful, she got a postgraduate certificate going back to New York Medical College and it and she got it completed for um, pediatric dysphagia which I was like wait a minute I don't have to get a postgraduate degree I can get a postgraduate certificate now would I move from Florida back to New to New Jersey New York to get a degree no but she did <laughs> what <laughs> Eyes on the prize. Boy, she absolutely did. Um, And she brought that back with her. And because of her utilization or her her mindset about continuing her education in any facet that she can, she is now a professor herself. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. She's working as a professor. She has um, her two areas that she's really pushing in are in the area of autism, which she started back in 2011 as an ABA. Um, you know, hired ABA professional. And with that, on top of her wonderful passion for pediatric feeding, she's like creating these programs for a school that is getting its accreditation, like it's working towards that. So she's able to participate in the growth of that program. I was like, hi, can I, can I come for diversity and inclusion, please? Can I? Uh, mostly because I think the the science of critical thinking and individualized care is lost in the discussion of diversity and inclusion. It really is the center focus of diversity and inclusion is to center focus on the particular individual that's in the room in front of you. And that's the success of uh, diversity and inclusion to me. Mm-hmm. Is I'm going to make my science based on you specifically right. and, and grow from what I know with you as my partner, like, hey, you know, work homies in this journey of your recovery. <laughs> <laughs> Let's work together on this. <laughs> mm-hmm. So for her, she is in an incredibly beautiful opportunity with this like dream existence of I can help contribute to a graduate program. You know, that's one of the things I've I've wanted to do is, you know, work up to being a professor. And so I'm just like, I'm I'm in awe. I'm like, ah, I'm going to need her personal contact information so I can pick her brain. <laughs> but well, I mean, you just you keep looking. You just keep looking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, I didn't know until you just mentioned it. I mean, obviously you mentioned it several minutes ago, that in order to be a professor, it does, you don't have to have a PhD in something in speech itself. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, you could be an adjunct professor with just a master's degree. I had those. Right. 
But yeah, yeah, you can have a PhD as a faculty member in something else. As long as you're research driven. Right. To be a faculty member means that you are bringing in those grant dollars. It's all about the money. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I don't know what system you think you're in. We were, we don't work on for, uh, warm fuzzies. We don't just operate, you know, giving warm fuzzies to everyone. No, I no. know what country I live in. I live in the country <laughs> of capitalism. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, if it's not tied to a green piece of paper with dollar signs on it, then you might be wasting your time, right? Well, there's the aggressive pushback that's happening in society. I feel like, like, no, 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 no. We need to do this better, which is why I'm participating in that conversation, because it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense. And it definitely doesn't make sense in the healthcare arena. So, yeah. Um, So if you're a contributing individual to a a university at this juncture uh, with your research, you will absolutely be a benefit or an asset because you bring in dollars. And you should bring in dollars because research takes a lot of time, lots of effort, um, and it makes for things to move and progress you know I think yes it it moves the profession forward it moves you know it it brings us into different uh treatment styles different treatment um, modalities so of course that is something very important that needs to happen and continue to happen yeah so she is someone who cares about how the research is done though which I was here for I was like yes (laughs) (laughs) So in speech language pathology, when you look at the research, the population of individuals that are utilized matters. And for this particular woman, she's looking at, well, are there individual cases? Is it duplicated by other speech pathologists? Who are the clients? That's how she looks at research. And where there was a big shout out during our conversation to LSVT. Because that Lee Silverman program was like, everybody gets to study it. You get a try. You get a try. You get a try. You get a try. (laughs) It was Oprah all over the place with LSVT. Boy, every kind of client in the arena got the opportunity to be part of that research because of individualized case studies and the way that broke down was just so beautiful. And that is where real good research in this country needs to go is in the the diversification of it, the utilization of individual case studies. Those things are invaluable. Um, And that's where I found it incredibly interesting that she not only looks at research, but looks at who is being researched and why this is relevant for her clients. Like she is... Mm, mm -hmm. Thorough. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you remember our research methods class? I absolutely do not. Okay. I remember the professor. I don't remember his name, but all I recall is he would sometimes show up and then other times he would just say, refer to the syllabus as to what your assignment is for today. And that was that. There were days that where he actually told us, I'm going fishing. I won't be in class. You show up, you do your work, or you just do your work from home. And I feel like that just did a disservice to, you know, how we understood or how we appreciated research, how we looked at things. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like we didn't even 
we didn't grasp how important research is and and the impact that it can have. Okay, I I just remember that I was, I kept being doomed by the idea of writing a twenty page research <laughs> paper. That is oh. the only thing. The only thing I thought about was like twenty pages. What other papers did I write that I can put in this? Because I know he's not reading 20 pages. How can I tie these together? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And actually, he kept getting um, hung up on my topic. I mean, I went on for weeks with him about my topic. Why? He just didn't like the topics I was choosing. Oh, God. Yeah. Anywho, my point being in in this digression of the conversation was that I feel like we just didn't, or at least for myself, speaking for myself, I did not have a really good appreciation for what research, research should look like, how research should be done, you know, how to include all different walks of life. I just, I didn't have that appreciation for that. And I feel like um, Superwoman did, which is why she looks into yeah. it in, in the manner that she does. Yeah, I think there are certain personality types um, Mm -hmm. that operate under the understanding of groundwork knowledge is necessary and um, and and are really beautifully academic minded. And I Mm -hmm. love those people because those people are not me. (laughs) (laughs) And we need them. And we need them. them. (laughs) Yes, they are so important and so necessary. Mm-hmm. Whereas people like me, that's like guttural. I just want to fix it. I don't care what it looks like, research based, not research based. I'm the person that's like, let's let's look into, you know, this ice business for you know swallow. Like let's let's create something really odd. I mean, I sit there and I use two fets and I make people move that around in their mouths for bolus management. There is nothing scientific about this, but it has worked in my individual experiences. And so it's things I'm that person, you know, I'm just the, let me try something new. And yeah. so uh, I, I don't, I'm not gripped in the experiences of research. I'm not good at that part. Um, so the fact that she's so, so uh, deep in it, so beautifully deep in it that she even looks at, who is being studied, it just, it's a beautiful thing to experience because then you trust them. Um, Right, right. You trust their work. You trust what they're putting out there for, for the science. You pay closer attention because you realize if you look at research in the speech language arena, it is very white, just white. (laughs) What is it? What is it? White. Like, oh, there is there is definitely an H in that word. <laughs> like the driven snow. <laughs> so with the diversification of, of the speech language arena, you know, with the 8%, woo woo, shout out to the 8%, y'all coming up. <laughs> um you know, more and more is being paid attention to. Like we're challenging everything. I, like, no, no, that's not, no, I'm not using that. That That's not appropriate. That doesn't make sense, you know? Uh, and the different perspectives, you know, there are SLPs going into this profession that are family members of stutterers or family members of dyslexia or family members of uh, autism. And they're coming into the science to be like, no, we need, this didn't work. Like, this did not work for my family member. We need to do something that does make sense and who are more intimately involved with moving the science forward and changing 
what speech pathologists have been doing historically. And that is diversifying the craft and it is making it more interesting, more dynamic and more individualized. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Where it's a step in the right direction. Absolutely. So in her um, discussion about being miseducated, which I thought was really, really fly, there's the discussion, of course, of how your clients pay. When she was up in New York and she was dealing in, in practice there or, it, you know, people can privately pay with comfort and ease. And mm -hmm. um, in certain areas in Florida, there are, you know, private clinics where the clients only privately pay. And things are catered to, to the parents, in fact, because the parents are the ones paying. You want to keep your client happy. So a lot of therapy was actually driven patient directive or driven therapy, um, parent directed, okay. um, par uh, parent driven therapy. So in that, when you see private clinics or when you see uh, arenas like that, it comes to a place where, you know, superwoman had to kind of question like, wait, I thought the client was the child, you know, I want the child to be the one that participates in what's going on. And um, private practice is something she said to be very weary of or to pay close attention because it's a slippery slope of, of, of structure. You are at the mercy of the owner. If that owner is a little unethical, guess what your practice will be? Ooh. And I have no, personal I, experiences with that. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was like, I know you know that, Ashanti. Oh, do I know it well. <laughs> I heavily recall, you know, when you were an SLPA during your career, and we talked about it on the first episode, and, you know, pretty much just explain, like, uh, I did not do this right because my boss was unethical. Um, and so that's where you have to be really, really careful. Now, in Florida, we have this wonderful thing called Medicaid that reimburses at such a fantastic rate of like $30 a session when it comes to children. And so she had to learn about insurance when, you know, she's navigating these walls that is, you know, structured, non-for-profit type of therapy. She works in an outpatient clinic that's connected to a non-for-profit hospital. There is much more patient-centered or client-centered uh, therapy there because, you know, you're doing your best. But you're in this uncomfortable system where reimbursement is just really tough, really low, and not valued, uh, especially with children. Children, I don't know why. Maybe it's because it spans over a lifetime and they just think it can't be that expensive for years and years and years. And then, I mean, they're students or their children that are on caseload for years. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's the reason that it's driven to be so low, but reimbursement is just pretty, pretty awful. Um, and not knowing about insurance and not knowing the difference between a private play, play private pay client versus a, um, an insurance based client and what services you could really provide and what you can really accomplish and what that looks like with parents because you will have a very financially affluent type of parent versus more of an immigrant or mm -hmm. a low paying. Those two different types of things, one speech language pathologist may have to navigate both those types of experiences 
in this state because they're right up against each other. Poverty and wealth rub up against each other with just a thin line in between. And that is actually something I experienced, uh, you know, doing home health, you know, once I was out and about on my own as an SLP, you know, freshly certified with all the bells and whistles that I needed. There were some instances where I was in a very, very nice neighborhood. I mean, the, the landscaping was beautiful. You would go in and there's nice cars in the driveways. These people have pools. And then my very next client would be in, you know, not to be gross about it, but, you know, in the ghetto, you know, in, in, in an area that is just garbage everywhere. It's a low income area. And it was to, to see and experience and go into these homes of one or the other, even if I didn't know the child's payer source, I knew, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's really obvious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that type of thing that in- impacts our profession is something to be really aware of. And if you're relatively timid as a speech pathologist or you're not really exposed to a variety of populations, you will get a sense of culture shock, dauntingness, uh, beautiful imposter syndrome, because if you walk in and you're like, hi, my name is Sarah, I'm the speech language pathologist, and you're looking at Tyrone, (laughs) what does white lady gonna do for me? is what's happening in Tyrone's head, you know, you have to kind of figure out how to connect. Yes. How to relate, how to connect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are not easy things for therapists that are just trying to do the job itself to also navigate the types of people. And, um, you know, I really commended Superwoman SLP because she's like, I connect to everyone. And with that New Jersey accent, she sure do. (laughs) (laughs) She sure do. She is all grit. She is made from tough stock. I see it. Her grind, her push, her progression through this really got her um, to where she is. I will say there were parts in her story that felt very white womanish to me as a black woman listening because she was like, I had to figure out how to say no. I said, that was very easy for me. I know I could say no, no problem. <laughs> you know, when you are recognizing what your limits are in the world and you understand that you don't have the capacity to do certain things, like I don't know what therapist said, I'm going to do 90% productivity because I'm going to beat them down. <laughs> if, I, if I catch you on the street. <laughs> boy. Who said, who said we could do that? When, when, when was that something? And, you know, I had a recent conversation where uh, I was told that it was correlative. If you had a productivity, your raise was correlative to your productivity rate. So I guess there was that, but I I still, I'm like, "Mm -mm." I would have still said no, because I don't need the money. I don't need it. I can pay my bills just like this. I mean, we already don't make enough, so it's not going to hurt me not to meet your expectations because- it just, it's, we should have said no. We can't right. now. We are doing it, uh, but we should have. It, it should have been something that was just a non start. Like, we can't start there. We can't go down that avenue. That's not something we're capable of doing. And so I felt we did too much, of some, or, you know, too much accommodating. Um, and when mm-hmm. she was saying, yeah, I had to learn how to say no, I had to learn my own capacity, I had to know my limits 
I was like, I've always known mine because it's reminded to me every time I wake up, I go outside, you know, the world is trying to tell me what my limits are from jump street. And I have to go against that because I happen to have women body parts and be a woman and exist in the world that way. And there's just this thin blanket of secondary to men out there all the time. Um, Yeah. And, and the assumption is that we're always going to accommodate and say yes. Right. So even though it feels, it shouldn't feel foreign because, you know, as a human being, you can say no. Um, it, it often does because of that unspoken, like you just said that, you know, we are secondary to the man. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking to her. I enjoyed where she was coming from and I'm so pleased with how she created this craft to be her, her dream experience. She's really moving that way and changing it in the last decade, you know, eight, seven, eight years of doing this. She's just really pushing and pushing and pushing and getting what she wants out of it. And she just has the energy to do absolutely everything. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, what? Do you drink a supplement in the mornings? Is there a vitamin you can recommend? Because you are operating on all cylinders. (laughs) Um, I want to thank all of you guys who have been religiously listening. I think it's been an amazing opportunity for me to know that people actually care enough to continue to show up and listen. I will say it is quiet as can be in our email box. So (laughs) we talk about it pretty often because we do want to connect and hear what you have to say. But it's been a very interesting, you know, idea that I'm like, I know people are hearing this, but I don't know what they think. And I still don't know what anybody thinks about this show, except the people I've had the opportunity to interview and talk to. So please, if you have a moment, um, it could just be something small, but uh, to email, you know, miseducatedslp at gmail.com or to just DM us on our IG, the miseducated SLP, because it really does make a difference. We want to know what you think. I definitely am interested in hearing thoughts or knowing that I'm not just speaking to the stratosphere, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah, and I, I actually want to also encourage, I know last time I was on, I said, you know, if we can all share with one person, like and share, I want to challenge everyone to leave one comment and it doesn't have to be about the most recent episode. You could say, Hey, back when episode two, this happened and you know, I had a similar experience. Just leave a comment, just, you know, engage, engage with Ingrid and I yell it and and give them a little bit more work to do because they have tons of work, but they need more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we just need, we want to know. Like, I feel like Joe, as I sing that song, I want to know what. what? Uh oh, uh oh. Yeah, I got to know. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. I'm know. there. <laughs> I'm begging, like, baby, baby, please tell me what you want. I mean, I feel like that dude in the notebook who was just like, what do you want? Like, I feel like- <laughs> Is it Ryan Gosling? 
Yes. Plays him, yes. Gosh, what so, do you want? He's so fine when he takes his shirt off. Did you see him with his shirt off? I'm like, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Did I see? I pressed pause. Are oh, you, are okay. You so we just doing no. it. Listen, we digress. Technology, like technology is wonderful. Just saying. <laughs> Oh, holy night. Yes, thank you for that <laughs> creation. <laughs> anyway, guys, thank you so much. Keep listening. Keep subscribing. Keep sharing. Please let people know, like, I heard this dope show, especially episode seven, because I, I need everyone to understand just how crazy this career can derail you, but still show up every week and still feel like I earned this degree. It is mine. This career is mine forever. And continue to see what you can do when everything falls apart. So I do encourage everybody to continue to listen and forge ahead. Yes and yes. <laughs> you guys have a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful day. Yes, everyone. Have a fantastic rest of your day. See you or we'll not even see you. We'll look forward to you listening next time. Mm-hmm. And saying something. Say something. Yes. Type something. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.